We'll hear argument now in number 006567, Larry Dean Dusenberry versus the United States. Uh, Mr. Z, Ms. Z, pardon. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The issue in this case is whether the procedures used to serve notice of forfeiture of petitioner's property satisfied due process. The federal government forfeited Mr. Dusenberry's $22,000 in 1988 after mailing a notice to him at the federal prison where he was incarcerated. It is not disputed that he did not get the notice. The, governor, the government argues that its 1988 procedures satisfied due process whether or not the notice was received. However, in light of the circumstances presented here, including the government's control over the prisoner's location and knowledge of the prisoner's location at all times, and its control over prison procedures, due process requires the government to use procedures that offer assurances of delivery to the inmate addressee and not just to prison personnel. Such procedures... Will you take the position that uh, it's not sufficient that there be staff at the prison who deliver mail to the inmates? That in and of itself is not sufficient. There, the, the procedures need... The need procedure whereby a prison employee uh, delivers certified mail to prisoners is inadequate in your that that in and of itself is inadequate as a uh, although is inadequate is inadequate although those procedures How can that be under any of our case law that that would be inadequate per se well the under this court's case law what's required when the notice is served is determined by consideration of a balance of factors in light of the circumstances. But we've and never that, required actual notice in any case, have we? Uh, no, although there is some suggestion of that in, in a couple cases, for instance, Phillips Petroleum. But in the, in, in the cases discussed in the briefs, there's not a requirement of actual notice. But at the same time, uh, the court assumes that the mailed notice or the form of notice will be received, and the court hasn't considered a case where it was uncontested that individual, an individual was entitled to notice, and yet the notice wasn't received. Well, but that's going to happen sometimes with any sort of notice except the requirement of actual receipt by the individual, and we've never felt that destroyed the validity of the notice. That's true, Your Honor, but in the circumstances presented here, consideration of the balance of factors leads to a requirement, the procedures that would satisfy that, those factors would also lead to actual notice. For instance, today, the government uses procedures under which after the mail is received by the prison, there's not just some vague distribution process at the prison, but the mail is signed for in the mailroom, there's a logbook kept, and when it leaves the mailroom, a logbook is kept that is ultimately signed for by the inmate. And this chain of receipts helps to ensure that there's extra care and attention paid with the delivery right, of the notice. Would you be satisfied with that if that had been uh, the case here? Yes, if those procedures had been followed. Even, even though there was, I was going to say, even though there was no receipt signature, but I guess under the procedures now, 
the, the prisoner would have signed a log. Is that right? Yes, he would have signed a log. And if he had a challenge and he has a signature, he's going to lose. And if there is no signature, excuse me. But the procedure that was in place for certain kinds of mail that was labeled special mail, if that had been, if that had applied to notices in this category, special mail, as I understand it, could be opened only in the presence of the prisoner? That's correct. And if that had applied, that old rule had applied to this category of mail, you would not object to that, would you? Well, the special mail that opened only in front of the prisoner happens after it's delivered to the prisoner. I think it's helpful that the FBI and the DEA in, in recent years, um, the government writes in its brief, in recent years have considered forfeiture notices that label those as special mail. But the procedure still needs to be adequate to get to that point where you're standing in front of the prisoner opening the mail. You see, I'm, I'm not sure what, what is the general principle of which you assert the rule that you urge upon us in this case is, is just an exemplar. Is the general principle that when the government is in charge of the delivery system, there must be actual notice evidenced by a signature of whoever it's delivered to? Your Honor, that's one important factor, but the case here is even easier because there are, there are numerous factors. You're not urging that, when the, that, that the distinctive factor is that the government is in charge of the delivery system? Because that would have been the case in the old post office when, when the post office was actually part of the federal government. So that's not the principle, right? That's not the only factor. Uh, here we have now, not... What, what is the principle? When the government is in charge of the residence, right? So, so, so we would need a similar rule for all members of the armed forces. There are several key factors here, and I don't think you can separate out one circumstance from the rest. Oh, you the, inmate the first one isn't it, right? You, you, it, I don't understand. If, if neither one alone is enough, I don't know why all in combination uh, uh, turn out to be enough. Because that's the circumstances. There's a body of circumstances presented here. The inmate's location is not just easily ascertainable by the government, but determined by the government. The, the procedures well, that used for... That would apply to all members of the armed forces. The procedures used for delivery are also determined by the government. That and, would also apply to the armed forces. And the government is in an adverse position, which I think uh, requires additional uh, cross-checks in the system to ensure that care is taken because the government doesn't have incentive to identify and rectify inefficiencies on its own. Do you really and, think that that's realistic here? I mean, you, you, you would not urge us to apply this rule in a civil action where your client was being served a paper by, by, by someone who was not the government? Well, if the, if the serving party were not the government, then the person doing the service would not be the person who was also in control of the delivery procedures. So you so, would not urge the rule in that case? Only when the government is, is the opposing party. Well, uh, I'm not trying to be evasive, but it's hard to answer without knowing all the circumstances there. For well, instance, the what would be the... They're just like this one, except that the complaint was not on behalf of the government, it was on behalf of a private individual. Well, then the private individual wouldn't have control over the procedures. Yes. It might be that mailing wasn't, yes. wasn't adequate in that circumstance. 
It might have to do with the value of the property. You can answer this yes or no. Do you assert that your rule would apply in that situation or not? All the circumstances are the same. The only difference is the complaint was not filed by the government but by a private party. It was for an ordinary debt that the, the prisoner owed money and the creditor brought suit. If it might not apply in that circumstance, but whether or not it does, this is an easier case. Well, let, let me ask you, uh, I, I take it you begin from the premise that mail notice is adequate for a civil suit, or do you? I'm going to in ask the, the government the same thing. I, 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 uh, are we supposed to write an opinion that, that says that mailed notice is adequate in any civil suit? No. The, the, in fact, under Rule 4D, mailed notice is not adequate under civil suit any, for any civil suit. But I don't think... Uh, from a constitutional standpoint, I know what 4E says, but from a constitutional standpoint, is mailed notice adequate in any civil suit? Well... I think it's probably not adequate in any civil suit. All right. What, what is and it? What What is it that, about this that makes mail notice adequate? Whereas, apparently, there's another class of cases in which personal service is required. Well, this case uh, isn't. You, you You begin, I, I I think, with the assumption that mail notice would be adequate, and the question is, are these mailing procedures adequate in this case? Well, no, you're not. I'm, I'm. I don't. I don't want to have you take a position you don't take. But it, it does seem to me that that is a baseline assumption from where you begin the argument. Am I correct about that? Not exactly, Your Honor. This case is not really a mailed notice case because the procedures that are inadequate are the procedures that happened after the mailing. The mailing is the first step in the delivery chain, and the question here is the adequacy of the procedures But I'm asking that. why is mail adequate at all? You seem to assume that, and that's fine. You, we can decide the case on that basis. But you make the assumption that if the mail were received, the mail notice would be adequate. If the mail is received by the inmate? Yes. And I want to know why that is. I'm going to ask the government. If we have to write this case, uh, it would seem to me that at least an argument could be made that personal service is required well, in any civil case. And that then we ask if this is a forfeiture, there's some old hangover from the in-rem idea that is still somehow affecting us, even though we don't talk mm -hmm. about in-rem anymore. So, but I, I want to know what your, your beginning principle is for the uh, due process uh, elementary uh, minimum standards of service. The mailed notice is any form of delivery, any form of notice, is adequate as to that individual if it's received. The mail notice is adequate when it's received, and in this case, the government's procedures use certified mail so that you know that the mail was received. If the government had mailed the certified mail to the proper prison and it had not been received, the certified mail slip never came back, then I don't think the mailed service would have been adequate. Have any of our cases ever required certified mail? Uh, well, the first case where the court considers whether mail notice is, is uh, constitutional in Hess versus Pawlowski, the, the mail at issue was certified mail. Subsequent to that, the court hasn't made a distinction between the form of mail. The court also hasn't considered the case where mail was sent but not received. In the court's cases, in Mennonite Board and Tulsa Professional Collection Services, in the cases discussed in the briefs, 
The question was whether an individual was entitled to notice in addition to publication or posting, not whether the court had no occasion to consider what would happen if the notice was mailed it but seems never to be got one, there. One of the difficulties I find with your position, Ms. Eve, is that this inquiry can come up, you know, months and maybe years after the actual uh, notice took place or didn't take place. And uh, it's one thing to say we have a, you followed a system and that system affords due process. But to have every case turn on an, perhaps an argument between the person who's seeking to set aside the service, I never received it, and someone else saying, yes, you did receive it, I think is rather unsatisfactory. Well, that's why the procedures should require proof of verification, which the government's procedures do today. If Mr. Duesenberry was served with a forfeiture notice today, he would be required to sign for it. And there would be no question later about whether or not he received it. Was he not? Your the question I'd have is we all seem to agree now that the question the government has to provide reasonable procedures. Right? Reasonable means reasonably calculated to give actual notice. Under the circumstances. Well, don't say under the circumstances. There's no such thing. The, uh, under the circumstances doesn't add anything, I don't think. Say, is it reasonably calculated to give actual notice? I haven't figured out your qualification, how that would work. Uh, but why wasn't this precisely? Precisely what's wrong with these procedures, in your opinion? Why the are they not calculated to give actual notice? Reason. The 1988 procedures <clears throat> did not provide assurances of delivery because what happened after the mail reached the mailroom is, was vague and undocumented. And as the government yeah, acknowledged... Wait, the procedure, I thought the procedure... What, what, tell me precisely. Uh, I think the procedure is, A, mail to a prison. B, it comes to a prison and a person who works for the prison signs for it. Then the procedure fought required what? C. What was it it required? And then what should it have required? The procedure was that the mailroom employee picked up the mail and signed the certified mail receipt at the post office, brought it back to the prison where he entered it in a logbook. Mm -hmm. A prison employee testified that in 1988 the procedure then would have been that a, a housing unit staff would have signed when he took the mail, the certified mail, out of the mailroom. Yes. He also testified that he didn't know what the procedure was after that. All right. I guess after that a reasonable person would think, the procedure after that is you give it to the person it's addressed to. Now, is that, I mean, that would be normal in life. Is there any testimony that that wasn't the procedure? No. No, there's okay. no testimony now, about that. We've described the procedure, and now you tell me what, in your opinion, is wrong with that procedure. The procedure doesn't require verification of delivery. Okay, and so in that your opinion, it is unreasonable not to have an additional step that the prisoner signs for it. Yes, and the reason is this, because the documentation, the improved documentation improves delivery. The, the uh, Department of Justice Board of Prisons memorandum that the Solicitor General lodged with the court, the, both in 1999 and 2001, they it ties improved documentation to improved delivery. Then, then, we, when, then whenever there's a requirement of, or, or a requirement of procedure for a service by mail, it should be certified mail so the person signs for it in every case. Uh, 
in you couldn't say every case because in Mullane, regular mail was adequate in that under the circumstances, which was heavily emphasized by Justice Jackson, those words under the circumstances. In Mullane and in, in some cases where there's a class of interested parties, where everyone has the same interest, it might not be necessary for all interested parties to receive the notice. As the court recognized in Mullane, because there were many beneficiaries of 113 different trusts, and they all, all right, had then identical then I'll interests. amend my question. In a case where there is only a single defendant and service is permitted by mail, it must be by certified mail. Well, that would likely be reasonable since the burden of doing so is so small and the increased, uh, the decreased risk of it not reaching the addressee uh, would be... Uh, you don't mean that it might be reasonable. You mean it isn't reasonable not to do it. That's your argument. It isn't right. reasonable not to do it. And I guess a person who thought it was reasonable not to do it would say, well, we can't think of everything. And, you know, it's in the prison. And prisons normally do work. I mean, they're not great, but they have a, a fairly uh, disciplined order. And so it's good enough. And your response to that is what? It, it wasn't good enough in, in these circumstances. The well, government they, they, has they shown might, us. They, they might say more than that. They might say, we have no reason to believe that the prison delivery system is any worse than the post office's delivery system. And I, I, guess it's your, I guess it's your contention that even if the reason your client never received the notice was had nothing to do with the fault of the, uh, of the prison, it was the Postal <laughs> Service that lost the, uh, the notice on the way. That would still, that would still uh, uh, invalidate the, uh, the service, right? Yeah, it would still mean the forfeiture was done without adequate notice. So, that, so, which would not be the case, I suppose, unless you're going to adopt a certified mail rule, which would not be the case for an ordinary citizen who is not incarcerated. If notice is sent to an ordinary citizen and the post office loses it, unless you adopt the certified mail rule, that would be adequate notice. But in the case of an incarcerated person, if the post office loses it, it is not adequate notice, right? Well, uh, I don't know that it would be adequate notice to serve someone by mail out of prison if it's not received. Well, what, is, no, what is the statutory requirement, in your view, for forfeiture as, as far as notice is concerned? The what statutory is requirement is, yeah. is publication and notice to the interested party. By mail? What, what is the general statutory requirement on these forfeiture notices? Uh, I believe the statute says by mail of the government always does it by certified mail. And I does that. It, so is it in the materials we have in the briefs? Is there some copy of that provision somewhere that you're aware of in the briefs? Don't take a lot of time if you don't know. I just um, thought perhaps you knew. Is it in your brief at all? It's on page three of the government's brief. Three of government's Page three, yeah. Just says shall be sent to each party who appears to have an interest. See, that's why I don't know how to do it. Because I mean, suppose there's a ship, for example. Take the other extreme case. The, the people forfeit ships. People have tort actions against ships, and you could have ships that are owned by thousands of people, for example. And where you bring the action against the thing, it's fairly normal that you don't actually have to get the signature of every person 
who has some interest in that chip, for example. I think. Am I not right? Or do you have to get the signature? If, if for example, you, you're bringing an action against a thing, and the thing is owned by millions, thousands, or hundreds, do, does the, do, do you have to normally, under the rules, forget the Constitution for the moment, you have to get the signature on, a, on, a, on that notice, a return receipt requested, of each person who has an interest in that thing. Under the statute? Yeah. Um, now you've asked a sort of complicated question, because the statute for an in-rem judicial forfeiture requires publication. Yeah. But the government, based on this court's case law, gives notice by certified mail. So I take it you, your argument would be that even if all the signatures are, are not required in the in-rem case, there is, there is a fairness in the procedure that would not require actual notice and signatures to every ship owner because the owner of the ship at least has some right to control the ship. Uh, so you say, look, if, if they don't pay attention to what's happening to their ship, we, we can tag them with that. But the difference between that case and this, as I understand it, is there is a period between the delivery of the letter and what should be the point of receipt by the prisoner when the prisoner is not in control of the process. The post office has finished its part, so if we assume regularity on the post office is normally enough, that isn't enough here because there's a hiatus between where the post office stops and the point at which we hope the prisoner gets the delivery. And I take it you would be satisfied in this case, uh, even without a rule requiring actual signature, if the government were required to show, with a greater detail than you say it has here, that there was a regular procedure at the time involved here that makes it just as probable that the letter would have gotten from the front door of the prison to the prisoner as it is probable that the letter mailed in the box gets to the front door of the prison. You'd be satisfied with that kind of rule, wouldn't you? Yes, I'm not, it's, not in, in, it's not important to the petitioner how the procedures... How he wins the case as long as he wins, I realize. But no. I mean, you would, you would, you would be satisfied uh, if, if we had the, I, I take it, the same kind of demand for proof of regularity for the period between the front door of the prison and the prisoner's cell that we do from the mailbox to the front door of the prison. That would be a, a reasonable system, and, and you'd be satisfied with it. I would take it as a general rule. Uh, probably. It would be nice to have a signature requirement, but basically uh, we, we would have the same kind of rule then that we have uh, with, with respect to mail delivery in general. Yes, but the reason that I emphasize the signature is because, as the Bureau of Prisons has since recognized, the... The signature does help to improve delivery. It helps make sure that this letter is treated with some extra attention and care. It ensures that it's not going to get misdel misdelivered to Larry Smith two cells over. Um, what do we do with prisoners who won't sign? Well, actually, the Board of Prisons procedures deal with that, and I think uh, effectively, which is the, on the logbook, if the prisoner refuses to sign, then the person delivering the mail signs for it, stating that the prisoner won't sign, which I think is comparable to a process server giving a contemporaneous uh, 
statement that service you know, has been completed. It seems to me we need to focus on some kind of a test. And uh, I thought I understood you to argue for a test that says in these prison cases there has to be actual receipt by the prisoner. And I, I know the Third Circuit and probably the Fourth have a different sort of test, which is uh, that the government just has to show that internal prison delivery procedures are adequate. Is that a, a, an acceptable general statement of the test? Uh, they have to be adequate. Mm -hmm. um, my view is that under this court's, the analysis that this court has used in its cases, in its due process cases, that applying that general statement leads to the same result that I'm arguing for here, although if the I court say it isn't adequate unless there's actual receipt. Yes, because those procedures are, it's entirely practicable to do that. There's, it is not difficult. Well, for in the, the event we don't agree with you, what's your fallback position? Well, <coughs> even under the Third Circuit's formulation, the court looking at the 1988 procedures in the record, uh, such as they are, um, those procedures were inadequate. It's uncontested that he didn't get the notice and the procedures as described are inadequate. Although for the same reasons as I think lead to actual notice, even if you don't want to go that far. Well, why is it that a procedure is inadequate if the procedure is that if we get certified mail, we, we deliver it to the prisoner? What's inadequate about that as a procedural standard? Again, it doesn't provide the assurances of delivery that both are feasible because if you're going to deliver it, it doesn't take that much to just get the signature, and because I think it's important to have cross-checks to make sure that the government... Do we look back at Mullane or at Matthews versus Eldridge for our guidance here in establishing a standard? I think either one, Your Honor. Mullane states... Uh, sort of states the test in one sentence, but I think summarizes the three-part framework that Matthews articulates later. Either way, you can reach the same result. The value of the property at stake, the risk of erroneous deprivation, the, valuable, the value of additional procedures, and the burden on the government, the factors to consider all lead to the, same, to the result here, that the prison should have done more and could have and should have ensured actual notice to inmates in its charge. Apply this rule to any setting other than prison, or are you talking about the circumstances of someone incarcerated by the government? Is there any other setting in which you would require not merely that certified mail be sent and signed for by someone, but in hand delivery? There may be other cases, though, there also may not be. This is the easy case. I mean, if there's any circumstances where actual notice is required, it's got to be these, where the government is both the sender and sort of the recipient for later delivery to the person who it knows where it is. The easy case, it is the case, I take it from your argument, because you haven't suggested that there might be another setting other than where the government has someone in confinement. No, I haven't. Is it any part of your argument that we should be suspicious of prison officials because they may use a refusal to follow their procedures for vindictive reasons or anything like that? 
That may occur, Your Honor, but our argument does not rely that's on any right. malfeasance on the government's part. Well, if, if that's not part of your argument, I don't see why um, your situation is any different from the military situation, where unless the, unless the uh, serviceman or woman is AWOL, uh, the government knows right where that person is, and the government uh, is responsible for, for where that person is in many cases. Uh, I don't know why you wouldn't have the same rule. Well, to be honest, I hadn't considered the military situation, and maybe there's more parallels. However, there's still the, um, the inmate is still special in that he has no control over his property. There are no proxies looking out for him, for his interest. Um, and the mail, even when it's sent to the military, it's, uh, my assumption is that if you get certified mail, the soldier is going to sign for it, the officer will sign for it, and not someone for later delivery to him without any proof or, rec rec or documentation about what happened in the interim. If the Court has no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Ms. Zeev. Uh, Mr. Manier, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court has repeatedly held that the notice requirements of the Due Process Clause are satisfied by a method of notice that is reasonably calculated to provide interested parties with notice of the proceedings. The government's method of providing notice in this case, this forfeiture case, satisfies that test. The method was by uh, the use of certified mail. And Petitioner does not dispute that mails generally are satisfactory for purposes of notice. Rather, they draw the distinction that only in the case of prisoners is that method uh, unwarranted or unconstitutional. Petitioner is asserting a constitutional violation. It therefore has the burden of proof of establishing the procedures the government used are unconstitutional. And I'd like to clarify a point uh, with regard to whether notice was received here or not. The government has not submitted that notice was not received. We simply are unable to prove that it was not received. So why not just put the burden on the person who was supposed to get it to prove he didn't get it? Well, that is, in fact, what the court did. Uh, uh, made an inquiry. The it wasn't the, the test they required, but the inquiry was made, uh, and the court concluded that whatever the protestations of the defendant might be, or the, the prisoner in this case, nevertheless, the method that was used here was reasonably calculated to reach him, and that is all that Mullane requires. No, no, no. If you, you, look, uh, what, what I take it that she's arguing for is uh, there's a step missing here, and it should, should apply not just to prisoners, apply to anybody who's going to have their property forfeited, and that is you give them notice by certified mail, so they have to sign it. That's the point. So it would apply to everybody, armed forces, everybody. And uh, what's wrong with that? It isn't that hard to do. Uh, it protects pretty thoroughly against uh, losing your property without even knowing about it. Uh, so do it. The problem that's, with that, that's basically, as I understand it, the argument. The problem with that position is it's contrary to 50 years of this court's precedent, which has consistently recognized that mailing alone, not certified mail, but ordinary mail, is sufficient to provide parties with notice. Where did the have, court have we ever that? said that with reference to a, a, a simple contractor tort action? 
No, all of the cases in which this issue has arisen in this court's jurisprudence have involved special procedures. Well, that's, that's why I'm asking, because uh, in Mullane and subsequent cases, uh, we have tended to say that the in rem uh, in personam distinction uh, is, is not too clear a line. Are you arguing for the proposition that, uh, again, in a standard a contractor tort case, uh, notice by mail would be sufficient? We are certainly uh, willing to defend the proposition of the federal rules of procedure, which provide no, for I'm notice. Talking about, I'm talking about uh, due process requirements now. Yes, and, and with regard to the federal rules, they do recognize that uh, service can be affected through mail with, through the notice of waiver provisions that are set forth there. And we would defend the constitutionality of those provisions, which allow the party to, in fact, accept service by notice. Yeah, I think your question If this court writes a due process opinion, can we say that mail is, or routine mail is always sufficient? Or are there some cases in which you must have personal service? Well, the court can certainly do that. We might caution that it's not necessary to do that in this case. Well, I case. want to know what the principle is that, you're, that, that, that controls our case, the, the beginning principle here. The court has drawn these principles largely from common experience and knowledge about uh, the instrumentalities that are used for purposes of service. And if we look to the Mullane case, the court cited that the males had, through common experience, been determined to be a reasonable means for providing service in that type of proceeding. Now, whether the court would want to take the step of saying that the mails are always adequate in any proceeding is a step that's not necessary for the court to take, and so I'm hesitant to suggest to the court that it ought to do so. It certainly does not need to do so in this case, because this case involves procedures that are very similar to Tulsa, to Mennonite, to Schroeder, all right, so, so that you are relying on the, the, the fact that this is a forfeiture case and we're, there's this uh, voice of the past of in rem versus in personam hanging over this, this argument of yours. Well, actually, no, Your Honor. It's not the, the in rem nature of the proceedings, but rather it's, a, it's, a, it's an intersection of two factors. One, this type of proceeding is similar to the proceedings this court has dealt with previously that are not necessarily in rem. For instance, probate claims are not necessarily would not necessarily be treated as, as in rem, I think, under under traditional law. But it's a, it's the intersection of the fact that these proceedings are similar to proceedings elsewhere that the court has already ruled on. And the fact that this court can draw on its long experience, the males are in fact, as a practical matter, a reasonable means for providing service or providing notice. I'm I'm just um, very puzzled by your reliance on the lane when Justice Jackson took such care to say this procedure, common trust fund, so many beneficiaries, some unknown, some addresses lost. If we use regular mail, the chances are it will get too many, if not most people in the group, and that's good enough for that kind of case. Here we're talking about some $12,000 that once belonged to an individual not 113 trusts combined together in a common fund with hundreds, even thousands of beneficiaries. Your Honor, Mullane has been extended beyond the facts of its individual case. And this case is, in fact, quite similar to the Court's most recent decisions, such as Tulsa Professional Services. In that case, I believe there was some $12,000 in medical fees that were in dispute. The, the 
creditor in that case couldn't count on other claimants, as in Mullane, to perhaps make the arguments that that creditor might Well, but that was with the pro- probate proceeding. And as Justice Ginsburg's questions point out, and what I've been trying to, uh, to, to, to explore with you, uh, this is a case where a person has an ownership interest. It's not that much different from an ordinary contract or tort action. Yes, Your Honor, and we think that this case is similar to Tulsa and ought to be treated as such. I'm simply reluctant to urge this Court to go beyond the facts of this case and to deal with the general question of a civil complaint and I whether suppose, ordinary... I suppose in probate, uh, a claimant, a debtor claimant, is in much the same standing as, as a person who sues in contract on that claim before the person dies. Well, yes, but probate is very similar to the situation here, that the notice that is being provided is simply to ascertain whether there are any claims outstanding to the property at issue. And if a person does make a claim, then that initiates a judicial procedure in which further process would be necessary. Uh, but this case is... There's no doubt about the person who has the interest. It was not like sending out a notice if any interested people come forward. The government knows who the person in the world is who has a claim to this $12,000. But, Your Honor, the same could be said, for instance, in Mennonite with regard to the mortgagee, that the person who was at that, that was a situation in which there was an interest in, in uh, foreclosing on a property and selling it at a tax sale. Now, the government in that situation certainly could have identified the mortgager and simply provided notice by publication. This court said that notice by mail was sufficient, that it was the minimum that was necessary, and it applied in that case. It's better than publication generally. And yes. Publication is the least effective, and the Mullane case that you rely on so heavily makes that point. Yes, and that's the reason why... Uh, the government in these situations provides notice by publication, also by notice to the person's last address, and also notice to his current address if it can be ascertained. In this case, the government, with, through reasonable, reasonable diligence, was able to locate the uh, individual and send notice to his uh, place of incarceration. The only thing that distinguishes this case, in fact, is that the mails are being directed to a prison. And the only real question here is whether the prison system is reliable. And what we established at trial was, in fact, it was. That there were procedures in place to ensure that the mails were delivered to prisoners. Fine. Then you would win, even under their rule, because then the prisoner would be unable to prove that he didn't get the notice. So assume that that's the rule. Uh, the prisoner has to prove he didn't get the notice. Anyone who doesn't, who actually gets notice, loses Assume that. What I'd like to know is, assuming that, what is the argument against saying where it's a forfeiture case and where the forfeiting of the person who's going to get the property knows the address of the individual who would forfeit the property, that person has to use certified mail. What she said was the government does that anyway in forfeiture cases. The argument against that, Your Honor, is that the due process clause simply specifies the constitutional minimum. The government can make a decision to provide more process Fine. than is My question is, what is, if you're in the government, aside from, well, it's a little easier, is there any policy reason for not doing it? The reason, there, there are several reasons for 
not erecting this as a, a general constitutional standard. One is the fact that it would have to be applied to other analogous situations, Aye. at least by a parity of reason. And the reason that that's wrong is because, I mean, the, the harm that it will do in other analogous situations. Give me an example of some serious problem that would be caused by such a rule. The rule would, first of all, require, for instance, as the Chief Justice has pointed out, similar knowledge, service on the armed services. Right. It also would apply to other situations that might not be documented in the record. For instance, it's my understanding that the Postal Service delivers mail to dormitories and residential halls in bulk for distribution to the people that live in those halls. So uh, I want an example, since you're writing the address anyway, I want an example of the problem that would be caused by saying you not only have to write the address, you also have to send it certified, whether it's to dormitories, armed forces, prisoners, or anyone else in the world. What's the actual practical problem that would cause the government? Well, I cannot say that the government cannot overcome that difficulty because it does, in fact, use certified mail. But the problem is, should the court erect that as a constitutional standard? And the difficulties with erecting that as a constitutional standard, as I pointed out before, is it will be very difficult to cabin that to a wide variety of other situations. With certified mail, you have to get a signature from the recipient. Whereas with ordinary mail, you can put it in the slot in your mailbox. In other words, it's often difficult to obtain the certified mail signature in a way that it wouldn't be to get the ordinary mail slot. That's correct. And for example... But, but shouldn't it be difficult if you're going to take $20,000 away from them? Your Honor, but again, this case is on, on par with other cases that involved similar amounts of money. And with regard to the signature, uh, obtaining the signature, my suggestion is it might be that the litigation will shift from the assertions that we think in many cases are, are untrue, that the person did not receive the notice, that, well, a guard signed for me and never uh, actually, I did not refuse to, to receive it, and a guard simply signed and said that I refused. What we're trying to do from a policy perspective, from the Bureau of Prisons perspective, is to eliminate the sort of wasteful litigation that takes place over Mr. assertions. Mayor, the Third Circuit has uh, apparently adopted a test that uh, requires the government to show a little more than that it dropped the notice in the mail. And that, in fact, the government must show that procedures at the receiving facility, the prison, were reasonably calculated to deliver notice to the intended recipient. Yes. Is that a, a standard that the government would find satisfactory? We disagree with that, Your Honor, for the reasons set forth in Judge Alito's dissenting opinion on, on that ground, namely that it imposes burdens that are not necessary. The burden is on the person who's raising the constitutional challenge to show the deficiency in the procedures, and no deficiency in the procedures has been but, shown. But your, your argument, it seems to me, is premised uh, on the fact that forfeiture is like an in-rim proceeding, and it's just different. Assume with me, I'm not sure that this is all. Assume that there's a constitutional due process requirement for personal service uh, unless there's some showing of unavailability in, in, in the routine case for contract and tort. Why should this be any different? The reason, 
That may be a heroic assumption. I'm not sure that's true. I I think, let me go back and ask. Do you know of any state which in an ordinary civil action uh, allows service by mail as a routine matter? I don't know. Absent unavailability or the fact that the person is avoiding the process server or something like that. I don't know of any state that allows ordinary mail. I believe that a number of states have adopted certified mail with return receipt uh, requested. I believe that California follows that pattern. And, in fact, the federal rules that provide this optional method Uh, were based on that that approach. Okay. But then then going back to the other question, uh, it it seems to me your case is premised on the assumption that this is a forfeiture in rem type different action than, than a routine contractor toward action? Well, we certainly do think it falls on the side of the, of the line that this other, the other cases of this court demarks, namely probate proceedings, tax sales, condemnation proceedings, uh, notice, forcible entry and detainer proceedings, which, is, which are basically ejectment proceedings. All of those types of proceedings have involved uh, situations where this court indicated that notice by ordinary mail would be sufficient. Now, we go beyond that. We do provide certified mail as a, as a matter of policy, and it serves an important can policy. I ask you this prompted by Justice Scalia's question. Does the government have any special procedures for people in the military? Uh, I'm not aware of any special procedures that, that we provide in those situations. Uh, for instance, if there was forfeiture... And I should think there are a lot of mail that might address to a serviceman might be signed for by the mail order or something. You may never get the mail. I'm just wondering if the, been, there's nothing in the record about this. No, there's nothing in the record, and it's not clear to me at all that if there was a forfeiture uh, that was directed to a serviceman, it would be treated any differently. What about the, um, the immunity while the person... There's an immunity that governs people in the military uh, during the time. Is it what is that statute? Soldier and Sailor Civil Relief Act. Yes, and I'm not sure how that would apply in this situation. It might very well toll the type of uh, requirement. It would toll limitations because the person could assert immunity for the period of what they're in service. Uh, Yeah, I'm simply not certain how that would apply. But I do know that for general civil procedures, for several civil forfeitures, the regulations of uh, the FBI do provide mechanisms such as mitigation and remission that can ameliorate some of the hardships where a party can actually show that there was non-receipt. I ask you a question that puzzles me about this. Even before the current regulations, there was this special mail category, and several things fell into it, including letters that the prisoner would get from the attorney. Those had to be opened in the presence of the prisoner. That's correct. And then there was this category called law enforcement. And why wasn't a notice of this character categorized as law enforcement and therefore put within the special mail category? I think for a short while, the DEA and the FBI did follow the practice of denominating certain mails as special mail. I'm not sure if the special mail category existed in 1988. I don't think the record is clear on that. I would point out, however, that under the Bureau of Prisons Operations Memorandum, there is more protection to providing it by certified mail rather than by special mail, primarily because of the long period of retention of the logbooks for certified mail. And so the practice for uh, the current practice of BOP. That applies to the federal system. The rule we're working with today would apply to state forfeitures as well, to state prisons and the like. So your rules don't necessarily tell us what would happen to a state prisoner. 
No, they do not, although I think that the, the, the court can, can safely assume that state prisons do, in fact, provide for mail delivery to their prisoners. Would you just comment on the suggestion that your opponent has made, in effect, that there really ought to be a special rule for people who are in the custody of the federal government? And I would assume with Justice Scalia that would include military personnel, too. Is there any, would it make sense to say that when they know darn well where a person is, there's no reason to have three publications in the local newspaper, you just make sure you get it to, the, to where the man is? Well, there's no reason to depart. That's certainly that the fact that we know where the person is certainly does dictate that we contact the person by mail. And uh, that's consistent with Mullane and its progeny, that uh, where the address is reasonably ascertainable, the person should be contacted by mail. The fact that we uh, have the person under our control, I don't think adds anything to that. The, the basic question is, is this notice reasonably certain to reach the inmate? And if it does, it doesn't really matter if he's at a location of our choosing or some other location. Uh, it's simply what's important here is, is this method, is the procedure reasonably certain to provide actual notice? Is, is there any court action if, uh, if, if we accepted your, your point and said, look, uh, they send it to the prison. It's signed for in the prison, so up to there it's certified. Uh, and then the person regularly picks it up, and this person did, and then delivers it to the cell. Suppose the picker-upper, either maliciously, negligently, or deliberately, didn't give it to the prisoners. Would the prisoner have any kind of claim under the Tort Claims Act? I think not under the Tort Claims Act because it does exclude intentional torts. There might be the, the opportunity for either seeking redress through the prison administrative uh, remedies or through a Bivens-type action. Uh, but certainly the problem well, there... Bivens-type action must be that there's a constitutional right. Or so. I mean, that's... But, but is um, the Tort Claims Act negligence? Uh, that under negligence, there is conceivably an, an opportunity to seek damages based on negligence, although you'd have to show an absence of, of due care. Uh, in the case of the government, the regulations here do certainly provide the sort of reasonableness that we think uh, compliance with would, would satisfy the make sure I understand your position on one point. Is it your view that even if you had not used certified mail in this case, but just used regular mail and an affidavit by the secretary that was mailed and so forth, that that would be constitutionally sufficient? Yes, it's our view that that would be constitutionally sufficient. The procedures that we use with regard to certified mail are something that we do beyond constitutional requirements in order to uh, primarily to ensure that we can disprove false claims of non-receipt. Mr. Minier, am, am I correct that the, that the current method of simply providing written notice is you, you maintain that that is the method that Congress has specified in uh, 19 U.S.C. 1607A? Uh, the method of provide the requirement of providing written notice, I believe, is in 1881 on page 3 of our briefs. And all that Congress has specified is that, uh, oh, excuse me, it is 1607A. 1607A. I'm mistaken. Written notice of seizure together with information on page three, on page three in the at the end of the first indented paragraph. It provides that written notice of seizure is to be provided. It does not specify mail. Shall be sent. Shall be sent. Shall be sent. To each party. What do you think that means? How, how does one normally send things? I mean, well, normally by mail, and we think that uh, it's... Uh, doesn't, doesn't say shall be sent by certified mail. I think it's a, a fair reading of, the, of what Congress thought was adequate was uh, sh 
was by mail. Yes, I think that by ordinary mail. And I think, as I say, the certified mail procedure is something that the Bureau of Prisons and the agencies have adopted in order to disprove false claims of non-receipt. That's its principal purpose. But it's our position that ordinary mail is sufficient here as it would be in the wide variety of other cases, uh, comparable other cases, that this Court has addressed. How do you think the Sixth Circuit standard differs from the Third Circuit's and the Fourth's? I think as a practical matter, Your Honor, that it's primarily a question of the burden of proof. Uh, Under the Sixth Circuit standard, uh, we are simply, if, if we are challenged, if there's a challenge to whether mail was, was received or not, it's the obligation of that party who's raising the challenge to prove the lack of reasonableness. Well, but here the government is seeking to forfeit property from someone. Maybe it's not um, unreasonable to think that the government has the burden of proving that notice was given or reasonably calculated to be given. Well, the government met that burden in this case, but again, we don't think that that should be the test. Rather, we think that it's the obligation of the party to show that what defects are necessary. And in this case, the only defect, the only proof of inadequacy that petitioner showed was his claim that he did not receive the notice. And we, in return, uh, indicated there were procedures in place that would have a, a certain mail. Now, because the issue was joined, it's likely the government would be required or would find it necessary or useful to put forward information about procedures. But the problem with the Third Circuit standard is it requires that we ex ante, at the very beginning of the process, go through and determine what procedures are in various prisons. And that doesn't seem, that seems particularly inappropriate with regard to state prisons, where we think it's reasonable for us to send, uh, to, to mail the receipts to the prisons with the expectation that those state prisons will forward the mail appropriately. Mr. Manier, we have a smattering of courts of appeals cases uh, addressing the issue that we've got today. But beyond that, I don't know how much litigation there is about this. Do we have any indication of how much time in forfeiture cases you spent litigating the question of notice? I don't know the answer to that, Your Honor. As we point out in the brief, uh, in the year 2000, uh, the government, the DEA and the FBI sent out roughly 9,000 notices of forfeiture to incarcerated prisoners. Now, how many of those are contested? I don't know the answer to that. But certainly there is the possibility of a substantial clog on the courts uh, particularly over claims of non-receipt, which are so easy well, to make. Well, uh, except I don't know that, the, that that argument really favors you. There would be certainly uh, some questions of, of uh, uh, adequacy of signature and so on. But if there were a, uh, a certified mail kind of signature requirement, I'm guessing that institutionally it might be of some help to the courts because I'm, I am assuming that in most cases there wouldn't be uh, any contest. If the government had the signature... It would go forward. If it didn't have the signature, it would wait until it got one. So I'm, I am assuming that knowing nothing, if I don't know any facts beyond what I know now, that there might be an institutional advantage uh, in a rule that required uh, the, the kind of proof that, that your friend on the other side wants. Your Honor, I think that uh, you know that the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Prisons in particular has tried to be helpful in that regard with re- 
with regard to providing this type of process, but we simply do not believe it's required by the due process clause and was not required to be in place in 1988. But would you, would you agree that there can be an institutional consideration in a closed case in deciding what due process does require? That certainly is a factor that the court could weigh. But well, again, you, you'd have no problem if we, if we held the way you've asked us to hold. I mean, that, that institutional problem would disappear if you put it in the mail and there are prison procedures in place, as there are in every prison, everything's okay, right? There wouldn't be any litigation about that. Wouldn't be any well, litigation. No, well, no. But, no, no there but, isn't. But there are also state prisons that do need to determine what procedures they would follow. And my guess is there are a large number of state pr prisons that followed the practice that was in place in 1988, uh, namely that certified mail may be signed by the, uh, by the prison uh, officials but they may not have recorded signatures with regard to the actual receipt by the end. And you think it's not reasonable for the government to assume that the state prison procedures are adequate to get mail to state prisoners? You don't think that that's reasonably calculated to get mail to state prisoners? We think it is reasonably calculated, so exactly, if, yes. If we held that this is a reasonable, sending it by mail is a reasonable way to do it, you wouldn't have any more of an institutional problem. Uh, well, no, we wouldn't. Uh, but if, if, we, if we said that because there is a gap between mail delivery to a prison and delivery to a prisoner, and for that reason there must be some indication of the procedure for getting the mail to the prisoner, then you might have uh, a, a problem and there might be an institutional advantage in a signature rule, wouldn't there? Well, well, that's correct. But again, I think the baseline, the constitutional baseline here should be that ordinary mail suffices. And it's left to the... I, I don't understand why it's, it's intuitively obvious that ordinary mail suffices when we have a situation here which is different from the situation covered by the, the ordinary mail. In the ordinary mail situation, the mail is delivered to someone's post office box or, or a mailbox, uh, and that box is under the control of the addressee. We don't have that here. We have, a, we have a gap between that point and the point at which the mail gets to a prisoner. And that's why it doesn't seem obvious to me that merely adopting an ordinary mail rule is appropriate to these circumstances at all. What am I missing? Your Honor, I think what, what you see here is that the, the proceedings below validated the fact that ordinary mail would suffice. The fact that there are mail proceedings below didn't, as I understand it, did not stop with proof that the letter was mailed. The proceedings below involved an, an indication of what the prison did with the mail when it got it in order to get that mail to the prisoner. Is that correct? Well, perhaps the answer to your question, Your Honor, is that this court can certainly affirm the decision below and say that the procedures below were adequate. It would be our view, though, that the court ought not to foreclose the possibility that ordinary mail would suffice. Mr. Muneer, do you know whether there are more prisoners incarcerated in prisons than there are college students uh, living in dormitories who, to whom the mail is not delivered personally or, or uh, individuals uh, living in high-rise apartment buildings where the mail is, uh, is sorted uh, downstairs and not delivered by the, by the postman to their, to their own room? I do not know the answer to that, Your that's Honor. That's a problem for all those people, just as it is for prisoners. They have to rely on whatever institution they're in uh, getting the mail to them. Yes, although I would draw a distinction between the apartment building, where oftentimes the mail is provided, is sorted by the mail uh, 
by the U.S. Postal Service put into individual boxes mm -hmm. and the dormitory residential hall. I think the Postal Service does draw a distinction between apartment buildings and dormitories. And that what about a hospital? There was a period when mail was not always routinely delivered to prisoners. Sometimes it was sent there and all the rest. Would you say that ordinary mail would have been sufficient in that period of time? Yes, uh, well, we think, that, again, there are... Well, the warden could just put it on the shelf and not even give it to the prisoner, and there'd be no remedy at all. Obviously, if there is, uh, if there is reason to believe by the party that's sending notice that the mail will not, that ordinary mail is, will not suffice, then due process may require that additional steps be taken. Mr. Minier, in the, in the hospital setting, the government has a claim against someone, knows that person is hospitalized, sends ordinary mail to the hospital, or the contract claim, the tort claim, whatever, is the government saying that for an individual it is enough that mail is sent to that person, care of an institution, no return receipt requested, that will do to satisfy due process notice requirements? Your Honor, I think that, that it would for this reason, that if a return address is provided and the mail is not delivered by the hospital, we can expect the hospital to send the mail to return it to sender. Upon learning that, the government may be on an under an obligation but at that the point. The hospital doesn't. I mean, doesn't mean if, suppose all we know is that this mail, well, I think your time is up. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Manier. Uh, Ms. Zeeb, you have two minutes remaining. First of all, I'd like to uh, address the, the suggestion that these cases are about false claims. Mr. Drusenberry actually made claims, uh, tried to get return of property of eight categories of forfeited property, in this case and in the one cited at 201 F. 3rd, 763. As to seven of the eight categories, it was proven that he didn't get the notice, either because it wasn't sent at all or it was sent to the wrong place. So there's no reason to think that he's lying about the eighth. Uh, in addition, this is not a mailed notice case. We're not talking about the adequacy of mailed notice to a mortgage company or a creditor of an estate. This case is more comparable to a situation in which you have a process server go out and you prove that you gave the notice to the process server, but you don't ask him or her to ever give you any verification that it was served. Certified mail uh, counsel suggests it could be above the constitutional minimum. But a, a Applying this court's framework, this court's test for assessing the adequacy of notice, we know it's not above the constitutional minimum because it will reduce the risk of erroneous deprivation at minimal burden. And we know it reduces the risk because it can only be, the notice can only be delivered if the signature is required to the addressee. It will not be sent as in a, a private residence. It won't be misdelivered to your neighbor's house. You have to sign for it. In a prison, it's not going to be misdelivered to the next cell or bundled with something else. The inmate's going to have to sign for it. And finally, the Third Circuit, which did not require actual notice, did so only because of concern about the evidentiary burden it would place on the government to have that standard. But the government's current... Thank you, Ms. Z. Thank you. The case is submitted.